we're looking at these chapters, 13, 14, and 15 of Romans. Uh, this afternoon it's chapter 14. And uh, we didn't read the whole chapter. It's a very interesting chapter. You might want to read it when you get home. Let me introduce it to you like this. Uh, a long time ago now, 1983, that was more than 30 years ago, probably before many of you were born. And, well, I'm sure it was before many of you were born. Um, but it, back in 1983, they, there was a book uh, that was called The Religious Factor in Australian Life written by this guy, Gary Boomer, uh, in which he, he analyzed the results of a very extensive values survey that was carried out in Australia back in 1983, a long time ago. I know Australia has changed quite a lot since then. Uh, and one part of the survey dealt with tolerance. And the survey was conducted by sort of asking people about their attitudes to various groups, various undesirable groups. People were asked, for example, would you object to your next door neighbor being someone with a criminal record? Uh, people of a different race, students, left-wing extremists, same, same thing really, back in 1983. The students were the left-wing extremists back then. Um, never married mothers, heavy drinkers, People with large families, right-wing extremists, emotionally unstable people, members of minority religious sects or cults, homosexuals, immigrants, foreign workers, unemployed persons, aborigines. Uh, those were the questions. And then the answers were analyzed according to uh, various social and religious groupings and an index of tolerance was calculated, showing, on average, the tolerance level of the different groups. And in the religious category, back in the day, in 1983, there were five groupings. Uh, Roman Catholic, um, Anglican, the two main denominations, I suppose, in Australia, uh, PMW, Presbyterian, Methodist, and Uniting. They lumped us all together uh, in that group. RWP, right-wing Protestant, that really is us. That's fundamentalists, that's, you know, people who believe the Bible. Uh, and then the last group was no religion. Uh, and guess what? I know it was a long time ago now, but the hardline fundamentalist, Bible-bashing, right-wing Protestant turned out to be the most tolerant group by a significant majority. That was quite a surprise, I think, at the time. Uh, and those with no religion came last, also, by a significant margin. What a, what a surprise. But, but not when you read these chapters in Romans, particularly Romans chapters 14 and 15. See, look what Paul says there, for example, in chapter 2 of verse 15. He says, each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. Now, as Paul rightly pointed out, that the, uh, the way that the Bible most frequently regards church is as family. We're, we're addressed as brothers and sisters. But here he talks about our neighbors. And uh, although primarily what he has to say here is, is directed to the church, he's got something to say uh, to society as well, I think, and to the way we interact uh, with those 
around us as neighbors. And the question is, I think, uh, how, do we, how do we live together in a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-racial society? How do we handle our differences? How do, we, uh, how do we disagree with one another without becoming disagreeable? Paul, I think Paul shows us here it, in, in, in this chapter tonight how the gospel is the answer to that problem. See, often as uh, Bible-believing Christians, we are made to feel that we are the problem. Isn't that right? See, some of the most tolerant people in society today, the people who pride themselves in being the most tolerant, are the most intolerant of people like us. They'll tolerate everything and anyone except us. And often as, as Bible-believing Christians, we're made to, be, to feel as if we are the problem. But what Paul is going to show us uh, tonight is this, that... Uh, Actually, we're the solution to the problem. According to these verses. So let me try and show you that. See, what precisely is the issue here? What precisely is the problem uh, here in Rome? Well, it's the Jew-Gentile uh, problem. It's the, it's, that's the question that's bubbling away in the background of Romans. Uh, which is, again, I say very relevant to, to uh, our society today. How do people of different races... Cultures, religions live together, cheek by jowl, in the same city, in peace. See, in the church in Rome, uh, this problem surfaced in, in the matter of uh, feast days and food laws. That was the issue. That's not the presenting issue here in our church tonight, but that was the presenting issue in the church at Rome. That's where this surfaced. See, for the Jews, uh, the food laws... And the feast days were what made them Jewish. It's what separated them uh, from the Gentiles. Uh, he, Paul's writing here, see, to a bunch of people whose racial and cultural identity was based on abstaining or not abstaining from certain foods, observing or not observing certain days. And, and so the issue, really, in a sense, is... Uh, very similar to what these kind of issues that we face today. How, uh, how do people from different cultural backgrounds live together in peace and harmony? How do people here in this small little church, Seoul Church, from Malaysia, from China, from Australia, you know, the North Island, uh, <laughs> from Russia, from all sorts of places, how do we live together uh, in, a, in a community like this at Seoul Church, without kind of patronizing one another, without marginalizing those we don't agree with. How do we do church? How do we live together as brothers and sisters in this church here at Seoul Church? And, and, and as we shall see here, I think, tonight, Paul's answer to that question is radically different to the, to the world's answer. The world wants to say, well, look, uh, everyone's position is equally valid. So let's just live and let live. You know, uh, no one has a monopoly of the truth. Uh, so I won't bother you as long as you don't bother me. That's, where, that's the way the world would like to solve this kind of problem. But that's not what Paul says, is it? You notice here, he, he distinguishes between the weak and the strong. And uh, 
he's kind of making a value judgment there. There are some people who are weak in their faith, and there are some people who are strong. And we need to know who's who. What does it mean to be weak in your faith? What does it mean to be a, a strong believer? And, and I think he, he is particularly speaking here uh, in this chapter to the strong about their responsibilities to the weak. So, so, so let me try and explain a little bit more before we get it. I've only got three points, and they're pretty short points, before I get into the three points. See, these people who want to hang on to their Jewishness in the Roman church, uh, who, these people who want to hang on to their Jewishness as expressed in the food laws and the feast days of the Old Testament, they think that they're strong. Uh, and they're probably very strong characters. And they probably argue their case very forcibly from the Old Testament scriptures. So they, they view themselves as being strong, and other people see them as very forcible, strong people. But in fact, Paul is saying they are weak. They are weak in their faith. They haven't fully grasped the gospel. That's what makes them weak, Christians. And so he says three things, and these are the three points for tonight. He's speaking to the strong about the weak, first of all. And he says, this is the first point, be a stepping stone and not a stumbling block. Look at verse 13 of chapter 14. See what it says there? Make up your mind, he says, not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Now notice he reminds us that we are brothers and sisters. Church is family. But you see what's happened in the church in Rome? It's what's happening in many churches in Australia today because of this COVID thing. Uh, it, they have, turned, they have turned church into a debating chamber. Arguing and disputing with one another about secondary issues. You might, have think, you might think that I've been repressing my inner Monty Python over the last few months that I've been with you. Because uh, I think I mentioned Monty Python last week. But you may, do you remember the, the Spanish Inquisition um, skit? I can't quite remember. I think it's set in, in a probably a little terraced house somewhere in Yorkshire, and the, the couple inside are having this, this great argument, and then there's a knock on the door, and they open the door, and there's a Spanish Inquisition standing on the doorstep. And the husband says to his wife, I wasn't expecting the Spanish Inquisition. And, and, and then somebody says, well, that's the thing. No one ever expects the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, well, it's very funny if you haven't seen it. Look it up on YouTube. <laughs> Well, sometimes church is like that, isn't it? Instead of, instead of uh, being welcomed, you're interrogated when you go to church. I, I actually remember that happening to me in London, in a very well-known church in London. Uh, and I went there just on a Sunday as I was free, and I went there uh, to visit this church. Um, and when I got home, uh, Ruth was asking me, well, how did you get on? I said, well, I felt as if I was being spiritually frisked at the door. You know, I was met with a, a barrage of uh, questions uh, about all sorts of secondary issues that had nothing to do with me or the gospel. Is that an NIV you've got under your arm? <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, instead of being welcomed, I was interrogated. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like that. See, church isn't meant to be like that, is it? Look at the, the two bookends of this uh, passage, really, the, the, this whole preaching section. It, it starts in chapter 
one, uh, chapter 14 and verse 1, uh, and it ends in the same way in verse 7 of chapter 15 with these words, accept one another. Uh, accept, verse 1 of chapter 14, the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. You see someone coming into church and you say, I wonder if he's been baptized by immersion. <laughs> I, I wonder if he fully understands the covenant of grace. And, and we, we're thinking about all sorts of things we might have interesting discussions about. And Paul says, don't be so childish. Accept the one who is weak in the faith without quarreling over disputable matters. And then verse 7, accept one another. In other words, you see what he's saying? He's saying, this is how we should do church. He's saying, put out the welcome mat. Don't pull up the drawbridge. Accept one another. Just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. That's what church is meant to be like. But, but all too often, you know, people come in amongst us and instead of feeling accepted, they feel judged and bullied and, and forced to comply with our cultural taboos. And it's always the dominant culture that does that. And we may not even be aware that we're doing it. See, we're a small church, but what is the dominant culture here at Soul Church? It's Aussie, isn't it? But we've got Chinese, we've got Malaysians. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, we don't realize that as the dominant culture, we're the ones with the blind spots. We don't see how difficult it is for someone from a different country, speaking a different language, the different experience of church perhaps coming in amongst us. We don't, see, we don't see how difficult that may be. And what Paul is saying is this. Put out the welcome mat. Don't pull up the drawbridge. Accept one another. Literally, well, that word accept means open your arms, open your circle, make room in your life for people who see things differently to you. Don't brush them off. Don't dismiss them, call them names, or marginalize them, or patronize them. Embrace them just as you yourselves have been embraced by Christ. That, that's the great thrust here. Accept one another just as Christ has accepted you. But now, I want to say this. That doesn't mean that anything goes. That doesn't mean that everybody's opinion is equally valid. That's not what Paul is saying here, is it? Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. He says, we who are strong. He's talking about believers who know what they believe and know why they believe it. Their faith is strong. And that's liberated them and it's given them freedoms and privileges. And, and he says, we who are strong, we ought to stand on our dignity. We ought to claim our privilege. No, he doesn't say that. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Actually, that's a bad translation. I know it's always dangerous when a preacher says that. Uh, but it is a bad translation because the preposition with is not there in the Greek. So what Paul is saying here is this. You see, to, to bear with someone is just to put up with them, isn't it? <laughs> Paul is saying, look, you know, we, we, we strong Christians, let's just put up with those who haven't really worked things out for themselves yet. He's not saying that. He's not saying that we ought to bear with those who are weak in the faith. He's saying... Actually, the word is you just bear. To bear is not to put up with someone. To bear is to lift that someone up, isn't it? It's what Paul means when he's in Galatians, when he, he, he talks about uh, 
bearing one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ. That's how we're to do church, he's saying. That's what we're, we're, to, we're, to, we're to lift one another up. We're to shoulder that burden. We're to take responsibility for it. We're to help that believer who is weak in their, in their faith. We're to help that weak brother to carry the burden. See, it's, in other words, see, the world's answer to all people's differences and so on is tolerance. So, well, you know, let's just live and let live. You know, you're entitled to your views and I'm entitled to my views and just, just let's get over it. That's what the world would say. But no, what Paul is saying here is this. The, 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 gospel, the gospel answer is love. It's love. It's not live and let live. I won't bother you if you don't bother me. I don't care what you believe as long as you let me believe whatever I want. You do, you do care if you're a strong Christian. You should care if you're a strong Christian. You do worry about the failings of those who are weak in their faith. You do let other people's kind of sensitive consciences affect you. You don't say, oh, that brother has, a, has an oversensitive conscience. That's his problem. No, it's your problem. You see? You are your brother's keeper. Do you see what it says in verse 15? If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat. That was the issue in, 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 the, in the Roman church. It was about you know, eating food uh, which is not kosher and all the rest of it. Uh, and and if, that, if, if you're eating stuff and you're, you're a strong Christian and you know you're free to eat whatever you want. You understood the gospel. You understand that all those food laws are all, are all being sort of uh, uh, fulfilled in Christ. And you, you can... You're free to do whatever you want, to go to whatever restaurant you are, to eat whatever sort of food you are. But Paul is saying this. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love, do you see? You may be exercising your freedom, you may be exercising your rights and your privileges, but you're not acting in love. Do not, he says, look at verse 15, do not by eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Do you see how, do you see how serious this is? Uh, we can all think of examples of what this means. I mean, alcohol is an obvious example. The Bible doesn't say that there's anything wrong with alcohol. Alcohol is a neutral thing in the Bible. In fact, the, the, you could argue that there's some positivity about drinking wine in, in the Bible. And, uh, and yet, we know of people who have qualms of conscience about drinking alcohol. Now, you're free to drink alcohol if you're a Christian. But if your drinking of alcohol in the fellowship that we belong to uh, creates a problem in the conscience of another Christian, then stop it. That's what Paul is saying. Don't, don't destroy someone for whom Christ died by what you eat or by what you drink. Let me give you an example of how this sort of thing works. I read this somewhere. It's uh, a high school girl. She's been raised in a, in a strict church, strict family, where she was taught that it was a sin for a woman to wear makeup. Now, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. It's, it's not a sin for a woman to wear makeup. The Bible doesn't say that. Okay? But she's brought up in a strict family and she was taught that it was sinful for her to wear makeup and her, that her conscience was troubled about putting on makeup. But then peer pressure from uh, school, from other Christian kids who were raised in, in other church families, led her to go against her conscience. 
And so she began to put on makeup after she left home in the morning and uh, remove it again before she got home at night. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, she stumbled, ultimately, because she was violating her conscience. She was choosing popularity over faithfulness to Jesus. She allowed herself to be pressurized by the strong Christians in her circle. And she found herself more and more open to real violations of God's will in the area of sexuality. She was choosing popularity over faithfulness to Jesus. And she stumbled because of her Christian friends, those strong believers who mocked her scruples and laughed at her weak faith. And even, uh, even though she was wrong in, 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 in what she believed, she stumbled. Do you see? The most damaging thing you can do to a baby believer the most damaging thing you can do to someone who is weak in the faith and still trying to work things out is to force them to go against their conscience. Don't do that, Paul says. Don't ride roughshod over someone else's conscience. It's to, the, it's to their own Lord that they answer, not to you. Don't use your liberty to destroy someone for whom Christ died. To pressurize someone to behave in a way that they think is wrong is actually to destroy the work of God in that person. We need to think about that. Especially in, in a lot of the things that are being debated right now. So be a stepping stone, Paul is saying, not a stumbling block. Make, see what he says, verse 19, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Uh, I'm not a great uh, uh, fan of uh, the Tour de France, but my wife is. She loves the Tour de France. She's shaking her head there, but she's, you know, that's it. She, for years now, you know, she, she goes to bed, normally, normally goes to bed fairly early uh, at night, and, uh, but when the Tour de France is on, she's up till the early hours of the morning. And, uh, you know, this has gone on for years and years and years, and I was just wondering, what's going on here? I used to, and she says, oh, what, I said, what do you see in the Tour de France? She says, oh, I love the Pyrenees. I say, which pair of knees are you talking about? <laughs> and uh, now it's gone on for so many years now I've begun to try and work out what is, that, what, what is cycling all about is it just about some guy trying to go up a mountain faster than anybody else and I realize of course it's, it's not that at all it's much more complicated than that there are teams and there are different tactics and there are different roles in the team aren't there for the different uh, riders and, and there'll be someone, I think they, he's maybe, he or she may be called a bunny, who goes out early in the race and sets the pace to tire, tire out the opposition, uh, to uh, clear the ground for the guy who's eventually going to win the race. Uh, and it's that sort of picture that Paul is painting here, you see. Uh, we're all on the same team. It's, it's not an individual thing. We're all on Team Jesus. And there are times on Team Jesus when you need to forego your own individual rights and preferences to help others along. That's what he's saying. So be strong, Paul says. Be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. So that we all cross the finishing line in the end. And then to the weak, this is the second point, and the points get shorter because I'm getting tired. <laughs> uh, 
And then to the weak, he says, so the, to the strong, he says, be a stumbling block, uh, sorry, be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. Aim to be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. Think about your behavior and your attitudes and the effect that has on, on other Christians in the fellowship. Be a stepping stone to build them up, to, to strengthen their faith, to give assurance of salvation to them. Be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. And then to the weak, he says, focus on the eternals, not on the externals. Look at, verses four, look at verse 17 of chapter 14. The kingdom of God, he says, is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, some years ago, uh, Matthias Media brought out a Christmas card with that verse on it. I think it's a great, great verse. It's a great text for a Christmas sermon. Uh, and the caption read, Good news for turkeys. Uh, I, I actually preached a sermon on that uh, title, Good news for turkeys. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. Uh, tell that to Coles and to Woolies. Christmas is not about how much food you can shovel into your stomach or, or whether that food is kosher or not. It's about Jesus setting up his kingdom in your heart, a, a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy. It's not about externals. It's not about days and foods and it's about the Holy Spirit working in our lives so that we know that we're right with God and we have peace with God and, and we have joy unspeakable and full of glory has that happened to you? do you know that? or is your religion just all about external things? coming to church doing this, doing that, being on this roster no, the kingdom of God is, is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit it's about, what is, it's about what God is doing in your life through Jesus. It's not about what you are putting into your stomach. You see, see the, what people misunderstand about this, they, you read the opening verses of this chapter, you think, oh, this is about, he's having to go at the vegetarians and the vegans. And so he should. <laughs> no, he's not. He's not. Because this is, it's, when he talks about those who are, you know, weak because of what they eat and not eat and so on. Uh, what, what lies behind all this? It's not about vegetables. Paul isn't saying if you're a vegetarian or a vegan then you're a weak Christian. You might be a weak person if you don't eat meat, but anyway, that's another matter. He's not, he's not saying you're a weak Christian if you're a vegetarian or a vegan. Okay? He's not saying that. That's not what this chapter is about. He's talking about the dietary regulations of the Old Testament. He's talking about the food laws in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. There's a whole list of unclean foods there which the Jews were not able to eat. They were, they were forbidden to eat. They were not kosher foods. And, and, and the whole point of those, those, those food laws in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus was to drill into God's people in the Old Testament this principle of you just can't turn up before a holy God just like that. You have to be prepared. You, you can't just stumble into the presence of a holy God without being clean. You have to be clean. And you see, here's the point. which make, This is what these people weren't getting, these weak believers. It's Christ who makes us clean, isn't it? 
His blood has washed away our sin. His sacrifice has opened up the way for us to enter into the presence of a holy God. His perfect obedience and blood hide all our transgressions from view. Now that's the gospel. And, and, and their faith uh, was weak because they hadn't grasped the gospel. They didn't see that what makes us pleasing to God now is the finished work of Christ upon the cross. So, it's not what we eat and drink, not whether we are vaxxed or unvaxxed, but righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what Christianity is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. And if you've grasped that, if you know that you are accepted in the beloved, if you know that you are accepted in Christ, not by works of the law, but simply because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, if you know that you can come through the veil into the holy of holies and appear before God because of Jesus, then you will be strong in the faith. So focus on these things, Paul is saying. Focus on the eternals, not the externals. See, the gospel must always take precedence over our cultural preferences. I love the fact that the only requirement for membership in a Presbyterian church, I've probably said this before, is uh, a credible profession of faith. That has to be right, hasn't it? See, it mustn't be harder for someone to become a member of soul church than it is to get into heaven. But sometimes it is. We add to the gospel our Presbyterian peccadilloes. We add to the gospel our cultural preferences, don't we? Some churches you couldn't get in unless you were wearing a tie. <laughs> There's a funny story uh, about a bunch of tourists who are walking around a town in the highlands of Scotland. If you know, if you know uh, Scotland is real Presbyterian territory. And in the highlands and islands of Scotland, they're, real, they're really Sabbatarian. And uh, there's this bunch of tourists uh, wandering around the town in the highlands of Scotland, and apparently they're accosted by one of the elders of the Kirk. You I can't do a Scottish accent, sorry. <laughs> Just imagine I'm doing a... You shouldn't be walking around like this on the Sabbath. But they protested, didn't Jesus walk around on the Sabbath? Ah, he did, but he wouldn't get away with it round here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a true story. I wouldn't be at all surprised if it was. See, Jesus himself wouldn't get into some of our churches. Isn't that right? Because we add to the gospel our own taboos and our own preferences. And often it's more to do with our culture and nothing to do with the scriptures. Now, we have such a delightful mix of different nationalities and cultures here at Soul Church, haven't we? We come from a variety of different church backgrounds. We've got Baptists, Presbyterians... Pentecostals, Independents, Anglicans. And it's the gospel that holds us together. We don't all agree on absolutely everything. We have got different views on the millennium, on the mode of baptism, on church government. We have different tastes in music, and we, we dress differently, and we speak different languages, and we eat different foods. There are so many disputable matters, even in a small church like Soul Church. There are so many issues that... Uh, we can agree to disagree on without being disagreeable. Homeschooling, creation science, <laughs> parenting, 
vaccine mandates and a multitude of other things. And do you see what Paul says there? This is such an important verse, verse 22. Whatever you believe about these things, he says, keep between yourself and God. Don't turn church into a debating chamber. This is what Augustine, I think it was Augustine who first said this, although many other people have claimed this. In, in, in essential unity, there are some truths that are necessary to salvation. They are indisputable. There are some things that we really have to believe to be Christian. In, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. I think that pretty much sums up what Paul is saying here. The gospel takes precedence over all our cultural preferences, whatever they may be. So how do we do this? How do we live together here at Soul Church? Be a stepping stone. Aim to be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. When you prepare to come Sunday by Sunday and to sit in this congregation to greet one another, aim to be a stepping stone, not a stumbling block. And focus on the eternals. Look for the great truths of the gospel, the great saving truths, the things that are necessary to salvation, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Focus on those things. Don't be sitting there taking notes and you know, picking out little things that you might disagree with. No, no, focus on the eternals, not the externals. And then lastly, and very quickly, model yourselves on Jesus. Isn't that what he says there verse, in, in verse, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 15? We who are strong, he says, ought to bear the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up, for even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. <coughs> the world's answer to multiculturalism is broad-mindedness, isn't it? Paul's answer is Christ-mindedness. Don't be narrow-minded. Don't be broad-minded. Be Christ-minded. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Oh, how the mind of Christ is different to the way of thinking of the world, isn't it? For even Christ did not please himself. As it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. See, on the cross, what did Jesus do? Did he put up with us? Did he say, oh, well, boys will be boys, you know, naughty people. Did he put up with us? No, he didn't put up with us. He didn't bear with us. He took our shame and our guilt upon himself, and he, he carried it. He bore our shame and our guilt, didn't he? Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned, he stood. He didn't just bear with us. He took responsibility for our weaknesses and our failings. He shouldered the burden of our guilt and shame. Why? So that we might be brought into his family, into God's family. What did Jesus do to make room for you in God's family? Did he sacrifice anything? He sacrificed everything, didn't he? Did he put himself out? <laughs> you bet he did. It wasn't robbery for him to be equal with God, but he humbled himself and made himself of no reputation. And he became one of us, and he died on a cross 
so that you might be brought in to God's family. And Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Now let, let that be our prayer then for 2022, and for the beginning of Pete's ministry amongst us here at Soul Church. Let this be, you know, maybe the motto uh, in verses 5 to 7 of chapter 15. This is Paul's prayer for them. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you, Soul Church, give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One mind, one voice. Not lots of different opinions on lots of different things, but with one mind and one voice, we might glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.